Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the multi-billion or really multi-trillion dollar industry of mergers and acquisitions. Just depends on your time horizon. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Our guest this week is Hadley Mullen, senior partner at TSG Consumer Partners, a private equity firm that invests in consumer and retail companies like Vitamin Water, Pop Chips, Pabst Beer, a bunch of your other favorites. She came to TSG after years working at Bain Consulting, and she'll share some anecdotes of deals gone right for her and talk to us what it's like being a female partner in private equity. It's pretty rare. But first, it's time for What's the Big Deal? And this week, we're focusing on a deal that's not happening. Canadian Pacific is ending its efforts to buy Norfolk Southern, uh, the railroad we're talking about. It's something that you've heard before on this show. Uh, after receiving some fairly severe regulatory pushback, and joining us now in studio to discuss is Bloomberg Gadfly columnist and frequent contributor to the show, Brooke Sutherland. Brooke published a column this week on the train deal that never was that you can read online at Bloomberg.com backslash Gadfly. Hi, Brooke. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh, so you've become sort of an expert on railroads, I guess, de facto, <laughs> uh, because this thing has been going on for so long. It has for months and months, and now it all comes to nothing. So Norfolk Southern resisted Canadian Pacific on a deal, uh, and they, as I said, it's really been going on for months. This resistance has been going on for months. Is it fair to say that regulatory forces caused this deal to die? You know, I think it was a little bit of both because Canadian Pacific had made several offers to Norfolk Southern and Norfolk Southern was not interested. The price wasn't high enough to entice them. The offers were increasingly complex. You know, they involved this complicated voting trust structure and a CVR, contingent value right, and all of these sort of different dynamics that sort of reeked of desperation to some extent and just were increasingly complex and not that interesting to investors. But then, of course, you did have the huge regulatory hurdles, which Norfolk Southern has been saying all along would be a big issue for this deal. And finally, last week, you had letters from the Justice Department and from the U.S. Army saying that the trust structure that Canadian Pacific was proposing and the merger itself would be bad. And that that, I think, was kind of the final blow here. And Pershing Square activist investor, uh, well-known Bill Ackman, who owns 9% or so of Canadian Pacific, he had been pushing for this merger pretty hard as well, along with Canadian Pacific's management, right? He had, yes. And so he had joined along with Canadian Pacific CEO Hunter Harrison in giving presentations on this merger. He was a big advocate for the value that this would create for shareholders, and he really thought that this was a great strategic plan. So I don't know that I fully understand this. It, it seems to me that you use the word desperation. Why was this conceived as a good idea from the start? In other words, was there a path that Ackman and Canadian Pacific saw months and months ago when they first decided to, to go hostile here, where they felt like they really were going to be successful with this? I use desperation more just because they weren't really coming up with more cash. And so it was sort of using all these creative elements to try to create more value out of their offer as opposed to just, you know, here's more cash that's going to make you want to like this deal. But I do think that is a big question because, you know, people said all along, once Canadian Pacific started going down this path about talking about consolidation, and they've been talking about it for years. They first approached CSX in 2014, and there was all this uproar about how you can't have a railroad deal. And here they are pushing for it again. And I mean, I guess you have to think that they thought 
that the regulatory hurdles weren't going to be this significant or they thought that they could make their case. And Hunter Harrison, the CEO of Canadian Pacific, has said all along that he started this because Norfolk Southern shareholders asked him to, that they saw value that could be created by a deal. And I guess maybe he just underestimated how much support there really was for this or how significant the regulatory pushback would be in this election year where, you know, the sides are all very hostile and there's lots of political rhetoric going around. Would it be fair to say that this is another defeat for Bill Ackman, who seems to be going through a series of defeats recently? It's certainly an ideological defeat because this was a deal that he really advocated for and saw a lot of value in for both Canadian Pacific and Norfolk Southern shareholders. Canadian Pacific actually rose on the news that they were walking away from the deal because shareholders, I think, were excited to kind of rid themselves of this distraction and have Canadian Pacific focus on running itself. So, I mean financially, maybe he's actually making some money, but it's certainly an ideological defeat. That's funny. That reminds me, it's it's almost as if, uh, I think there's a Simpsons line where uh, uh, the Simpsons family is trying to come up with ways to save, to save money or something like that. And Bart says something to the degree of like, I'll pick up smoking and then quit. And then Homer's like, good, here's a dollar. <laughs> I mean, that's what it sounds like a little bit. In other words, it's... Uh, uh, you know, now that we're not doing this thing that you forced us to do, like then the stock can rise. It's it's curious to me though, s- still that this was even pursued in the first place. So I'm wondering, at least you know, what is like the, the baseline reason for why railroads need to consolidate right now? Sure, I mean the strategic logic does make sense. We don't really have a transcontinental railroad in the United States. You have Union Pacific. And Burlington Northern in the west, that's the railroad owned by uh, Warren Buffett, Berkshires Hathaway. And then in the east, you have Norfolk Southern and CSX. But we don't really have a railroad that runs all the way across. And so the idea is, if you have that, you can massively improve efficiency. You can get rid of congestion in places like Chicago that most of these trains switch at. And you can create a lot of value just by cutting out all of the costs. But you know, I think just realistically, given the regulatory landscape, that's just not something that regulators want to see happen. And, you know, I, I think Canadian Pacific was also looking at its own business. It's cut a lot of the costs out over the past couple of years. Hunter Harrison has been extremely successful in getting costs out of the business. But at a certain point, how much more can you cut? And railroads also aren't really having a lot of growth right now because, you know, with commodity prices slumping as much as they are, all of that volume that they got from carrying coal and crude oil and things like that just isn't there anymore. It's not growing at the same pace. And so, you know, it kind of comes back to a thing that I know you and I have talked a lot about. When you're in this slow growth environment, you've already been cutting costs. What else is there to do but M&A or big things like that? Hunter Harrison, by the way, has this terrific Southern drawl, which I think is hilarious for the CEO of Canadian Pacific. Uh, It is like the reverse of the Canadian accent. What is now left for each of these companies? In other words, okay, so regulators basically said, by the way, maybe we should explain this first. So how did regulators sort of emphasize that they were not game for this deal? So there were a series of deals, you know, back sort of in the late 90s, and they didn't work out very well. And there were service disruptions, there were increased prices. And after that, the Surface Transportation Board's predecessor, you know, that's sort of in charge of regulating the railroad industry was like, we're putting our foot down, we're going to increase the standards for approving these deals. And they introduced this new test called the public interest test, where any sort of merger has to benefit the public interest. And you have to show that this is, you know, for the greater good. And it really put a sort of stricter 
standard on getting these deals done. And it's really been an untested standard so far. That's, by the way, exactly uh, the standard of why Comcast couldn't go forward with the Time Warner Cable deal, also could not pass the public benefit interest in there. So is it is it the Department of Justice that regulates railroad deals? It's uh, the Surface Transportation Board is the one that would be approving the merger and approving, they have to approve the trust structure as well that Canadian Pacific was proposing. And they did they say publicly that this was not going to fly? It never actually got to that point. So Canadian Pacific filed after pressure from investors for a declaratory order, which is sort of like a preliminary go ahead uh, from the Surface Transportation Board. And what they asked for was, you know, sort of a blessing on this trust structure that they were proposing. But as part of that, you know, the Surface Transportation Board also takes comments from interested parties, you know, including customers, including senators and things like that. So all of these letters were published and many of them were against the deal, which of course is not great publicity. So now getting to the question I was going at, also sort of similar to the cable industry here, after Charter went ahead and and, uh, agreed to buy Time Warner Cable and that deal is probably a month or two away from closing, assuming it does close, you're left with an industry where there's not all that many more combinations of deals that can go through that would in fact pass regulatory scrutiny other than really small deals. Is that where we are in the railroad industry? In other words, are Norfolk Southern and Canadian Pacific pretty much, I don't know if I want to use the word doomed, but uh, doomed to stay independent or, or maybe for the better they'll stay independent? Never say never, but I think certainly in this environment, it is not positive for mergers and railroads right now. And I think you know what this deal showed us is that there's just not an appetite for these to get done on a major scale. Because, you know, the railroad industry has already consolidated significantly, that does really limit you as far as M&A. You know, Kansas City Southern is the smallest of sort of the big railroads in the United States. But there are reasons that, you know, maybe somebody wouldn't look at that. It's very expensive. It has these operations in Mexico that involve dealing with a whole another country and its laws and that sort of thing. So, I mean, I think at least for the foreseeable future, we're not going to see a lot of M&A out of the railroads. Brooke Sutherland, uh, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. Make sure you read her her recent column uh, on this train deal and all of her other excellent columns at Bloomberg.com backslash Gadfly. Thanks, Brooke. Thank you, Alex. We're joined today by Hadley Mullen, Senior Managing Director at TSG Consumer Partners, a private equity firm that specializes in minority and majority investments in consumer and retail companies. That includes Pabst Beer, Stumptown Coffee, and many others. Hadley, welcome to Deal of the Week. Thanks for having me. And joining us as well, Bloomberg Private Equity Reporter, Kyle Porter. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Alex. How are you doing? Good. Uh, so, Hadley, let's jump right in. What led you to get into private equity? You started in consulting, right? I did start in consulting. Um, I actually um, spent a significant amount of time at Bain & Company uh, in their Boston office and San Francisco offices. And, uh, you know, I came from a liberal arts education. I didn't pick up a calculator in college. So for me, going into management consulting after undergrad was pivotal. I always uh, liken my my time in management consulting as sort of a a mini MBA, if you will. So great exposure and, uh, you know, feel so grateful to have had uh, that foundation before transitioning into private equity. And what made you switch from Bain Consulting to private equity? You know, when I was at Bain and Company, and I want to draw a distinction between Bain and Company and Bain Capital. Bain and Company is the strategy consulting portion of Bain. 
Um, when I was at Bain and Company, I actually worked for a lot of private equity firms, helping them conduct due diligence and, and kind of kick the proverbial tires on prospective investments. So if a, a private equity firm was, was was looking at making an investment in uh, a major retailer, for instance, they would often hire Bain to determine, you know, is this indeed a good investment for us to make? And so I spent a lot of time at Bain and Company working in that group, and, and ultimately I said, you know, I actually want to not only advise on what are good investments, but actually pull the trigger on those decisions and then work with those companies to help them scale over kind of a five- to seven-year investment hold and, and then successfully exit those businesses. So oh. definitely got a lot of exposure to private equity while in management consulting and, and ultimately decided to, to jump to the principal investing side so, uh, so I could actually have some proverbial uh, skin in the game. And what was the uh, attraction behind TSG? I mean, presumably there must have been a few offers given your background in consulting. Yeah, you know, what was attractive to TSG for me was that, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time, all of us, no matter what what you do for your work, you spend a lot of time at work. Um, and I really wanted to work on investments in an industry that I had a lot of personal passion for, which is consumer and retail. You know, the vantage point I had at Bain & Company was working with, again, a lot of different private equity firms. And some private equity firms are generalists. So they may do a software deal one month, and then the next month they may acquire a manufacturer, and then they may do a services deal. And I'm a big believer that getting the deal done and winning the deal is actually, you know, that's when the real work begins. I think that private equity firms that can drive differentiated returns over time are going to be those that actually have a real specialization so that they can add a lot of value to the companies they invest in once the once the investment's actually been made. YTSG, you know, I love consumer and retail, but I also just fundamentally believe that um, within private equity, those funds that are specialists in one particular industry uh, vertical are going to drive the best returns over time. I also was really attracted to middle market and growth equity investing. What I love about the size companies that we invest in is that um, it's very easy to make very tangible changes to the business and immediately see the results in the P&L. So we can make a decision about entering a new channel of distribution, for instance, and we'll see that reflected in the P&L at the next board meeting. Whereas, you know, many of the larger companies I was working with when I was at Bain & Company, you know, huge, really high-impact companies, but it it takes years sometimes to kind of change the course of that ship. And so I, I just find it very personally rewarding to work with companies that are earlier in their growth trajectory because the changes that we can make can just have such a profound and, and, and near invisible impact on performance. P&L lingo there for uh, those of you not quite as familiar. Profit and loss statements, uh, basically the bottom line uh, is I think what Hadley's referring to. And why why consumer and retail? Because you just like to shop? Is that the appeal? <laughs> I will say I do love to shop, and, and it, it, is, it, is, it is funny sometimes because my family hates going to the grocery store with me because it takes so long because I'm turning over every single product at the shelf and you know, trying to figure out who makes it and should I cold call that company to see if they need equity. Um, <laughs> I love products that are just tangible and real. certainly spent a lot of time evaluating software deals, for instance, which can be an incredibly attractive place to invest and manufacturing businesses uh, while at Bain. But at the end of the day, the consumer economy drives so much uh, of our GDP. And I love also just the, the mystery of getting inside consumers' heads. You know, one area where I've been kind of very active at TSG is, is bringing consumer research 
really very actively into how we think about prospecting for new investments and how we evaluate new investments. We're always out there talking to consumers. You know, I love trying to get inside and crack the code on and what's going on inside consumers' heads. So take take us take us inside baseball a little bit if you can. What was the most uh, you know does something come to mind as the most unusual or interesting deal that you've worked on and, and why? We like to invest in businesses. Um, oftentimes, consumer products, you can buy them anywhere, right? We can we can buy consumer uh, products at the store. We can increasingly buy them online, et cetera. And we like to invest in businesses where there's some change occurring in kind of the what we call the channel of distribution, so w- where consumers are buying that particular product. I'd say a really interesting deal that we worked on and that I, that I worked on, um, and it was interesting for a lot of different reasons, but um, was a cosmetics business we bought several years ago uh, in, in L.A., and at the time, this cosmetics business, which was called, um, which is called Smashbox, was owned by two brothers, and uh, it was around 30 million in sales, and, and it kind of flattened out, and it was selling predominantly into department stores. And, and over the course of discussions with these brothers, it became pretty clear to me that they're selling into these department stores. But if you actually think about it, you know, paying for that woman behind the counter, paying for our, you know, all this counter space in these department stores, are they actually making money uh, in these department stores? And, 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 and our work demonstrated that, gosh, it really is hard for these brands to make money in what has always been kind of the go-to distribution channel or point of sale, which is department stores. So um, we worked with them to really push into a new channel of distribution, which is stores like Sephora and Ulta, um, which at the time um, weren't nearly as big and well-known as they are today. So we pushed that brand into um, to these new channels of distribution. We walked away from department store customers. So um, I remember the entrepreneur calling me up and saying, I can't believe you want us to just turn off these customers, stop selling some of these department stores. I can't believe, aren't you in the finance business? Don't you like revenue? And we said, well, no, but revenue that where you actually lose money, you know, is, is not revenue we want to chase. Let's really focus on, um, we can make this business smaller and more profitable by focusing on different types of customers, different points of distribution. And fast forward, the business more than tripled in size in three years, went from zero uh, earnings to 20% earnings, and we sold to a strategic acquirer, Estee Lauder, for a, a wonderful price for us and the, and the entrepreneurs. So um, that was certainly a really interesting one to, to be involved with and, and, and one, of my, uh, one of my favorite deals. I know what, one theme also, Hadley, we've touched on before on this show is being a woman in a male-dominated business. And I'm curious if you've personally felt any sexism in your career or if you feel women in general aren't given a fair chance in private equity and other M&A-related fields where, you know, at least at a senior position like yourself, you're a minority. Yeah, you know, this, it, 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 it's really perplexing to me that there are so few women in, in, in finance and private equity, and, and it's disappointing. Um, and, you know, my partners and I have spent a lot of time trying to think through, you know, why is this? And, you know, part of the issue is we, we just, you know, the funnel. It, it's interesting. We don't have as many women opting in. You know, when we, when we hire um, kind of the, for the entry-level position, we just don't get very many female applicants, and that's always been perplexing to me. You know, part of it is, you know, I think private equity has long been very clubby. It's it's a little hard to it's hard to get in. It's not like firms are hiring 50 people a year and they have formal recruiting programs. So a lot of getting into private equity is having really good networking skills and 
some people have said that, well, gosh, you know, private equity is so clubby that it's, it's all about these guys playing golf together and, you know, who knows who and, and, and that women are sort of excluded from that informal networking that, that kind of is the door into private equity. And I, I do think there's some truth to that, absolutely. There was a time when, you know, when I had my first child, I was the only female investment professional at TSG, and that was back in 2005. Um, and uh, I remember being really nervous about telling my partners that I was pregnant. Um, I'd been at the firm less than a year at that time, and, and I was so nervous about it that I waited until I wanted to get my bonus before I told them, which in retrospect is just so laughable because my partners have been incredibly supportive. And I went in, and, and so I waited until I was about six months pregnant. And at that time, you know, every day my husband would look at what I was wearing, and, and I'd say, can you tell? Can you tell him that I'm pregnant? <laughs> so it was getting more and more difficult to hide the fact that I was pregnant. So I finally went in after I'd gotten my bonus, and I said, you know, hey, I'm I'm having a baby, and quite to my surprise, the response was unbridled enthusiasm from them. And when I was seven months pregnant, so you know, not long long thereafter, I actually got promoted, and uh, and and the firm has been incredibly supportive and in, 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 in helping me integrate, you know, my family life with my work life. Um, when I joined the firm, I was the most junior person on the team, and I'm now one of the senior partners, and I've gone on to have actually two more children. So I, ha- I have three children. I'm, I'm really passionate about creating more paths for women uh, in finance and in private equity. And in fact, we're really proud of the fact that almost half of our investment team today is female. And then uh, we've also worked really hard to access female talent in, in other ways. So we have um, created some sort of, um, I won't even call them part-time because they're 40-hour-a-week roles, but we have some incredibly talented women who, for a variety of reasons, have said, hey, I can't travel like a deal professional, but you know, these are women who are incredibly well-trained, have so many skills that they can bring to the table. And so we've created these roles that don't require the travel that's typically inherent in, in private equity, but they have a huge contribution to our team. I'm really proud of, uh, of what we've accomplished at TSG, and, and I always make myself available as well to women who work throughout the industry. And any and, you know, most anytime I get a call from a woman who's in an investment bank or maybe in consulting or in business school and is you know, looking for advice, I always take that call because I, I think we really need to. Women can bring a lot to the table, and it's a shame that they're not better represented uh, in private equity today. Fantastic answer there, Hadley. Uh, just uh, one final point I wanted to bring up. Uh, one of your former investments was Vitamin Water, which of course featured the rapper 50 Cent as an investor. I wondered what he was like to deal with. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I actually wasn't personally uh, involved in, in Vitamin Water, but, um, he, you know, he was one of, uh, of many um, smaller investors in that deal. And, you know, I think what, what was so amazing, what Vitamin Water did, which was leveraging some of these personalities and tying them. You know, there's always some danger in tying yourself too closely to a celebrity, right? Because who knows what, you, know, you may open the, you know, wake up to find a bad headline about the celebrity you've chosen to kind of hitch your star to. But instead, what Vitamin Water did was it established uh, relationships with multiple celebrities and, you know, giving some of them, as in the case of 50 Cent, their own flavor, for instance. And um, that type of uh, marketing effort, you know, really helped propel Vitamin Water water, uh, you know, as it was in its early days. And at the time, um, you know, a, a really kind of new tactic uh, for marketing consumer products. Hadley Mullen, Senior Managing Director at TSG Consumer Partners. Thank you for joining us, Hadley. Thank you. And thanks, Kyle. Thank you, Alex. 
So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, next week, we've got Bob Teitelman, author of the book Bloodsport, a look at the how the foundation of modern M&A came together. Uh, a must-read. You'll really uh, enjoy listening to him, I think. Uh, and in the meantime, make sure you listen to all of our podcasts online. Uh, you can listen to them on Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to them on iTunes. And when you're there uh, or using any app you use to listen to podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, catch me on Twitter at Sherman4949. See you here next week.